Welcome to Ivy League Murders. I'm Sarah Alcorn. And I'm Laura McDonald. And we want to thank everyone for tuning in. We have a great show today, so we're going to dive right in. But first, we want to say a special thank you to my sister, Margaret, for generously contributing to the podcast. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you so much. Yes. And to Paul Gibbons, who's totally our UK bro and really gives us wonderful feedback and has contributed. And yeah, so generous. Yeah. If we ever go to England, we're going to come bug you, Paul. Okay. <laughs> and so. we hopefully are going to get to England. So with that, th- we are going to get right to the show. So. As you know, Laura and I just love the high-low. Our journey often takes us into both the glamorous and the seedy. And I got to say, the guest we have today floats easily between these two worlds. Peter Olson is a Harvard graduate class of 77, a professional poker player, and the author of several books. He has contributed to a number of publications, including Sports Illustrated, New York Times, Esquire, Village Voice, Rolling Stone, and many others. He has also opened his own publishing company, Arbitrary Press, and reissued his first book under the new title, The Vig. He has just published his first novel, The Only Way to Play It. He is also the father to a very talented ninth grader, Eden, and we wanted to give a shout out. We're both the mother of daughters, so we want to give a shout out to Eden, who I think has published two books. Is that correct? Her second book is in the editing process right now, so it'll be coming out probably this spring. God, what a slacker. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> so we wanted to give a shout out to Eden. We were very impressed by that. And we absolutely loved your book. It was hilarious. I have also read your book on Stu Younger. I'm going to wow. save some Stu Younger questions till the end. And what I love, Peter, is that I found the characters were amazing. And you have this kind of literary lens on this very seedy world. And I love the perspective that you have on it. And you're also from a literary family, we found out. And if I may mention your uncle briefly, he really helped to sort of mold our true crime genre. You know, we hate dropping names on Ivy League murders. (laughs) Norman Mailer. I'm sorry, but the Executioner song was a major book in in the formation of this true crime mind, I have to say. Is that right? Wow. Yes. I mean, the story of Gary Gilmore. And I mean, that was, I mean, that's really amazing. I think of some of the books that really and this and the whole genre you think of in cold blood you think of the executioner song these are just major books in our genres so yeah really very important book in a you know great writer and you are a great writer in you your own right in, yes Peter, and we are very very, very honored to honored. have you yes no, and um no. so introduce yourself yes we've been talking way too long please Tell us about yourself. Well, I mean, I think most of it is in the books. And, you know, I mean, I have picked the genre of memoir mostly, although my new book is a novel. But yeah, you know, I mean, I grew up in this sort of bohemian literary milieu. My father was a playwright and later the copy chief at Bantam Books. My mother was the assistant to the president of Simon & Schuster. You know, there was this publishing background. And then, of course, my uncle. So I grew up, I mean, the thing is, as I was growing up, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was join the family business. So, you know, like many young boys, I dreamed of becoming a professional athlete. And I actually had some talent at tennis, but probably started too late for that to become a reality. I didn't start playing seriously until I was 15. And I think in the tennis world, if you want to get a jump start, you have to start earlier than that. But I was always very competitive. And so I channeled that competitive 
this into things like poker. And I started playing poker when I was 10 years old. On my dad's knee, he had a game with his theater cronies, including two of the people who participated in Tootsie. One of the writers, Murray Schiskow, and Dustin Hoffman. When I was 10 years old, I played in one of these poker games with Dustin Hoffman. I lost more money than I had, so I ended up paying him off in fish that I had caught earlier that day. Oh my God. That's, that's great. Oh, I love that. And I'm just intrigued because you went to Harvard and you chose this line of work. And before we begin, mm-hmm. okay, I have to admit, like, I'm kind of like a bookie virgin. I mean, and, and I maybe some of our listeners <laughs> are too. Laura, literally, she's literally. A Laura, yes. Laura, Laura had a bookie which I have to say my respect for her lit went way, way up when I heard that. You know, In New but, York City. And, you know, I'm a PI. I've never had a bookie case. I've had a RICO cases, racketeering cases. I get the general idea, but for our listeners and maybe for someone like myself, can you kind of just lay out what a bookie does? Yeah, so bookies take bets, and the way they make their money is with what is called the VIG, which is the title of my book. It was, in fact, the original title, although when the book came out in 1996, my publisher persuaded me to call it Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie. They thought it would be more commercial. But the VIG is the 10% fee that bookies attach to all losing bets. A winning bet has no tax on it, but a losing bet does. And so you know, I mean, since cavemen, people have wanted to bet on the outcome of events with uncertain outcomes. So the bookie is the person who fulfills that role. So you find yourself, just to kind of get into the book a little bit, you find yourself in your early 30s, you know, you're a writer, kind of without work, trying yeah. to freelance kind of out of a relationship, you know, we've all been there, like, and you're not really maybe living up to your degree, and you kind of fall into being a bookie, which seems people say, how do you fall into being a bookie? So maybe you could kind of say how you fall into being a bookie. Yeah, well, I mean, as I say, I I wasn't unacquainted with the gambling world. There is a gambling gene in our family. So my grandfather was a compulsive gambler. I don't consider myself a compulsive gambler. I like games of chance, but only where I have an edge. Whereas my grandfather seemed to take pleasure in games where he was operating at a deficit. And that was what appealed to me about poker is that that was a game where skill is a large component. Of course, there is a luck component. So... I was, as you say, at a a low point in my life, and I did stumble into this situation where the son of a friend of mine was working as a bookie, and he gave me a ride up to her place in Sag Harbor, and I was fascinated by what he was doing. And so... A few days later, he called me up and asked me if I wanted to take part. And I, since I had nothing else going on at the time, it seemed like there was no reason not to do it. But I, you know, I will say that I was, you know, I was sort of in a in a desperate place. I was not living up to my promise. So in some ways, you know, there was there was a certain amount of self-loathing involved, and you know, a way of, of sort of punishing myself for not living up to my promise. Yeah, why not? I'll get involved in something that is. Uh, you know, not legal and not very reputable. Was there a part of you or I sort of feel like I picked this up from the book where you thought about, okay, how would I write about this or how, or was it purely like I need to make money 
So initially it was purely, I need to make money. And also, I mean, I will say that I've always been fascinated by the seamy underside of things. Um, You know, one of my favorite novels in college was Day of the Locust. And I I just, you know, I've always liked, you know, the dark side of things. So there was that. And then once I started doing it and I would walk to work and I would walk along St. Mark's Place and I actually had, a friend who lived on route and either on the way there or on the way back after a shift, I would stop in to his place. And he's a fellow writer, a guy named Legs McNeil. And I actually and, met him. <laughs> have you? Oh, yes, funny. I have. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, I mean, yeah. I started telling Legs about what was going on in this, in this bookmaking office. And he was like, man, you have got to start taking notes and you need to write about this. And I was like, yeah, maybe he's right. You know, I, I, I mean, it's funny as, as a writer, you would think that that would be the first thing you would be thinking about, but I really wasn't. I mean, I was, I would, as I say, I was in a, I was in a bad place and I was just trying to sort of, you know, put one foot in front of the other. I love some of the characters that you come across. Can you kind of, because I think your lens that you see them from there's, I don't think there's any irony that, that where they, they don't see themselves in the same sort of ironic way, but. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, let's paint a picture for people who haven't read the book that you yeah. you start working in this kind of backroom establishment and you're answering the phones. And I, I guess I related because I, I at one point had a bookie and I used to have to call and give a code word. So I used to bet the brew. And so I used to have to call and give a code word. And, you know, so it's kind of funny. So people would call and give a code word and you are taking these calls in this kind of backroom establishment. And it had kind of like a you know, a locker room fraternal type of feeling with all of you guys sitting around kind of giving each other shit and, and just make, you know, I, I, you really got this real testosterone vibe. Yeah. And everyone had these, these, you know, all these, these funny names, like, you know, I called him Prozac Pat. I mean, you know what I mean? You just have all these kind of, you know, names that you, of these guys and I, you know, steak knife and all these and it, monkey. You know, monkey. And yeah. I mean, I just thought it was, Spanky. Yes, spanky. <laughs> so maybe you could tell us a little about all the characters you kind of interacted with. And and you did, I did a sense that attraction, and I was attracted to that. I was yeah. very attracted to that. Well, I was very attracted to it. At the same time, it was sort of the opposite of glamorous. So right. we were, the office was actually in the East Village apartment of a character I called Krauss in the book. Yeah, he was um, disgusting. Yeah. He, he, he was. I mean, he was sort of a, you know, a, a sad sack, former aspiring actor who, when we, he was renting out his apartment part of his apartment to the bookies and they were paying him, you know, several hundred dollars a month. And he would rarely emerge from what we called his cave, which was his bedroom. But when he did, you know, he came out and he was, you know, in his skivvies and unshaven and otherwise unbathed. He was, he was a character. And then the guys themselves, some of them were, were old school bookies who monkey and Pat, and these were, in a sense, them, these, those guys, but there were also the younger guys who were like me, Ivy educated. One of them had gone to Columbia. Uh, another had gone to Cornell. And there was this collision of cultures in the room between the old school way of doing things. I mean, this was right on the 
the cusp of, you know, these great societal changes with the internet and cell phones. And we were still using rotary dial-up phones in this office. And, you know, to set the scene, we were in this living room with its Salvation Army furniture. And, you know, it, it was in a state of disarray. And there we were sitting at a table underneath a fluorescent lamp with with ashtrays full of cigarette butts, you know, the room full of smoke, and 10 rotary phones all tied into a, a system that kicked one call to the next line and sit there for two hours during an afternoon and take the bets from the people calling in. And even though we were working in this, you know, sort of decrepit base, the amount of action that we were taking on a big football weekend, we were taking $3 million worth of bets. There was this very, you know, odd dissonance between where we were and the kind of money that was involved. And the guys were hilarious. And it really was like a fraternity in that, you know, they, they looked at me and, you know, I was the new pledge. And so they were going to bust my chops at every turn. <laughs> and especially the old school guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of that? Of the chapas? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, the thing is, this Harvard guy, and despite my, you know, having been poker player and, and knowing a little bit about sports betting, I didn't know the fine points of how the line work and how all the sort of betting essentials. And so in teaching me these things, you know, they, they just were merciless about teasing me about the fact that I'd gone to Harvard, and yet I couldn't understand these the, <laughs> <laughs> very simple betting principles. So there are some great terms that come up too yeah. in terms of bookie terms. Like, yeah. you know, like, can you can you describe some of these things that you learn? Like, you know, what's a nickel and a dime and sharp yeah. and, you know. Right, 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 exactly. So, so a nickel is a term for $500. Uh, a dime is $1,000. There's sharp guys and suckers. Suckers are just ordinary people who, who bet on games, and those are the most desired players for a bookie. But the sharp guys are the professional gamblers who actually have either inside information or there was the computer gang who were sort of at the forefront of analyzing sports teams using analytical data, and they would get an edge on the line. The line was made in Las Vegas by a guy named Roxy Roxborough, at the startup at that time. And I mean, it was very interesting to me that the line was not necessarily designed to accurately assess which team was five points better than another team, but rather to assess what the betting public believed was the, the difference in the game. And so, so they would, they actually would favor if they thought a team was a seven point favorite but the public saw that team as a nine point favorite they might actually put the line at nine points and that gave us a space for the professional gamblers to go the other way using the the actual projected differential in the game if that makes sense yeah it does it does yeah no, it's interesting. I have to say one of my favorite parts of your colleagues was the office pool about who was going to die first. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and um, and the, the interesting thing is, that, and, and sadly, most of those guys that I worked with are dead. I know. I saw, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to like be a spoiler alert, but I did see that. But I just thought that was funny when you're just like, oh, we had an office poll to see who was going to drop dead first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because I went to some monkey died back in the day. We uh, We all went to his funeral. The rabbi who who did his eulogy said said about him, monkey who loved sports and the uncertainty of their. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. So there um, comes a point in all of you know in 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 all of this where there's a dramatic police bust. Yeah, and um, so and, and you know obviously to go from Harvard to lockup is quite a shock. So yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, the shock of being handcuffed and put in central booking and yeah. and how that affected you. But but also like uh, or maybe is is it giving away too much to say how that happened? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it was it was sort of an inevitability. So I mean, were you afraid of that? I mean, I mean, we didn't really talk about the fear. Like, were you afraid of that working there? I mean, what was your or was that part of the excitement? Because you were there were other busts happening as you're doing this. You're watching other people get busted. So you didn't know it was. Yeah. I mean, we knew that, and, and you know, as a way of sort of staying ahead of it, the office moved several times during my time there. But it was, there was a feeling of inevitability that it, that it would happen at some point. And of course, you, you know, while it may have been, there may have been a little bit of excitement thinking about it, mostly there was dread. And when it did actually happen, it was shocking because they, they break the door down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use a battering ram. And they come in with with guns drawn, and you know, I mean, there we are. We're we're hardly dangerous. You know, I I don't know if you've ever been at the end of a of a gunpoint. It's it's just not a pleasant feeling. And they're also the the, the cops who bust in. You know, they're they don't know what they're they're coming into, and so they're sort of overly excited. Right. Yeah. And and that is that is nervous making. You know, once in the Brooklyn House of Detention, and then put in. You know, I had no idea how grim it really is in a place like that, mm-hmm. and the and the kind of uh, characters who who are in there. Who my my overriding feeling was one of shame that you know that I had not that I had been afforded privileges that that none of the other people in there with me had been, and you know this feeling of of having somehow squandered those privileges. So it was humbling, and definitely after the bust and in the aftermath of it, I was pretty sure I was never going to go back to doing that again. Despite the fact that that you know all of my compadres were were certain that that I would come back and that they were all going to go back, and in fact they they did, although in a different form. Because as I say, there was this clash of cultures between the old bookies and the new bookies and the whole bookie scene was changing and so uh when they did reopen it was not in a east village tenement it was on margarita island off the coast of venezuela and using 800 numbers and and the internet 
That that yes. does sound a little more pleasant, I have to say, as a working environment than a, you know <laughs> than a flop house in the East. You know. East yeah, East. yeah. No, I, I, I think so. Um, yeah, and of course, they wanted, they wanted me. They wanted me to join them there, but I I really had very little interest in. And and of course, I by then I had I had also started writing the book, and you know, and and the book was for me transformative in in my writing career because it was my first published book and and certainly paved the way for for subsequent books was your family aware that you were a bookie or what was your i i love yeah. the i love your jobs you can't tell your mom about uh, yeah yeah so, so, <laughs> well so my so my mom even after my book came out was sure that it was it was fiction <laughs> <laughs> it's only was, a mom. Yeah, you gotta gotta love mom. And, and the funny thing is that um, at, at one point uh, after the book came out, there was I don't know if you remember this the supermarket publication, the National Examiner. Oh, oh of course. Yeah, yeah. So I would, all, they, I get all my good news from National. They, they did they did an they did an article called Harvard's Crop of Dirty Rotten Apples, <laughs> and and so. I was in there amongst Ted Kaczynski, a guy who had ripped off a children's uh, cancer charity. And, you know, my only feeling about it when I saw it was, oh, mom is going to be so proud. <laughs> I hope you framed that. I know. I oh mean, my God. That, that's like a collector's I'm piece. I'm jealous. I know. I know. Really? I, I don't know. I'm sure I have it somewhere, but but it's probably buried deep in a box. I mean, we just had the guys from the Ivy League Monsters on, and I listened to that. Represented there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that was that was unbelievable. I can't believe that that woman, Bishop. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She's one of our ladies. Yeah. yeah. One yeah. Of our ladies. No, yeah. the so you would think you get busted for this, and you just say that's it. I'm going to turn away from poker and live this clean life and never play cards again but that's not what happened <laughs> no that's not what happened. <laughs> not no. at all yeah yeah no i mean I, you know as i say you know i've i've always been attracted to both the the semi underside and you know there is this gambling gene so so i kept playing poker after that i'd been playing poker right along and you know for for a while i was i wouldn't call myself a true professional poker player because i was also making money off of writing but i was semi-professional there were periods where i was making more money playing poker than i was off of my writing wow. um and, and and what and what's a bigger gamble peter <laughs> <laughs> well that's a good question i i mean i don't i don't i don't think that you know especially now where where publishing is in such a precarious state you know i <laughs> I don't think it would be unfair to characterize poker as a as a sure bet. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. At Ivy League Murders, we always sort of talk about like, you know, are murderers born? Are they made? But do you think poker players are born or are they made? Or, you know, Sarah was asking, she said, I wonder if I tried hard enough, if I could become a great, because I'm actually very good at blackjack player. I, I played once 11 nights in Vegas, which I consider a great feat to play. A yeah. Just for, for an amateur. But I practiced a lot and I studied it a lot. And so me and Sarah were talking about whether you, you're born a great player or you, can you really, yeah, do you because think you can study poker enough? Yeah, because well, for, for, for me, I have to get my friends drunk enough <laughs> so that I can win. That's really what, what you know. 
Well, it's interesting. There's actually a book out now by Maria Konnikova, who is a New Yorker writer who is also fascinated with both, you know, things sort of slightly seamy, con, con men, mm-hmm. uh, etc. But but also mostly from the psychological aspect of it. And she decided to to actually find out whether one could become a poker player. And so she apprenticed herself wow. to one of the uh, world's best poker players, a guy named Eric Seidel. And she actually went on to win a WPT poker tournament. No. So so I guess the answer is, you know, you you don't have to come by it naturally, but it but it certainly helps if you have both an aptitude for math and psychology and for risk. Sure. You obviously have to have a lot of emotional control to make sure that your opponents don't know what your tells are, that type of thing. Even more so for for the bad things that, that happen, for the unlucky things that happen. So to keep yourself from, from coming unglued, unglued or unhinged when when things go badly. And you know, in, in poker, you you find out a lot about luck. And how luck, the variance can can mean that an event where you're supposed to win two out of three times, you could actually lose 10 times in a row. And when that happens, it can be very destabilizing. Sure. And, and so your ability to, to sort of maintain your sang-froid and your composure in situations like that is, is a great uh, component of how you do as a poker player. So you can be incredibly skilled, and yet if you don't have that capability of of maintaining your balance, uh, there there are there are players I've played against who are great players technically and in terms of their understanding of the game. But a couple of bad things happen to them, and it all goes out the window. And you know, and they undo everything good that they had done through. Mm. As in life, as in poker. As in life, as in poker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And do you, do you think with the electronics and the internet that things there's really an element of all of this being lost to playing everything electronically to betting electronically? I mean, aren't there's apps now that kind of do? Because what I mean, yes. I just okay, think Steve, about right. even gambling and going to games and going to Vegas and just that whole excitement and. You know, I mean, I know you can't smoke anymore, but, you know, the smoke-filled it, rooms. It's, it's kind of like the glamorous, the, the glamour, sleazy. You know, the it's like, just like that you know, whole environment yeah. to me is just, I because I'm very attracted to that. It's just so fabulous. And it's like, just seems like now everything is kind of like, you can just do it all online and you don't really even need to do that anymore. Uh, it's very true. And, you know, for me, that's part of the romance of it that's been lost. And, you know, and, and that's true in, in, in almost everything with, yes. with, with data analysis and think about book publishing, where in the old days, there was really no way of understanding what happened with a book. And now they know, you know, down to the decimal point. And so what that does is it it makes it all sort of very scientific and bloodless. Yeah. And, and Sanitized think, almost. It's yeah. Like, yeah. And a lot of yeah. a lot is lost through that. I think in, in some ways too much information is is a bad thing. 
I, I love in the book too that one of the guys you worked with then went on to Wall Street. And so what did they say comparing being a bookie to working on Wall Street? So he didn't actually go straight to Wall Street or, or it's not a direct line to Wall Street. What he did was he went into a, uh, he started a biotechnology company and he's made an incredible amount of money at it. But he says that it's, you know, that the bookie world was much more straightforward <laughs> and honorable oh, yeah. than, than, than it, you know, than it is in, in the world of tech and finance. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I can't have you here without bending your ear about my mild obsession with Stewie Unger. So, yeah, yeah. So I don't know if people don't know who Stewie Unger is, they should definitely look up Stewie Unger. They should definitely read your book on Stewie Unger, which, which, which is called One of a Kind. I mean, I read it and like, I, I actually, it's on audio book. It's actually free on Audible right now. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yes. I don't know. If, is that bad to say? No, I it's bad to say. <laughs> but it's free on Audible and I listen to it in like a day, but I'm fascinated by him. So for anyone who doesn't know, he's kind of a Lower East Side New York poker phenomenon that you wrote about. Yeah. And who was really just like a poker gym prodigy. Yeah. And I would just encourage anybody to, I don't even know what to say about him. I mean, it's kind of a tragedy, his story, but I mean, he would just be someone you would, I would say would just, was just innately good at cards. He was, he was, I mean, he was a card genius really. And he had, you know, there is no such thing as a photographic memory, but he had a near photographic memory. One of the things that he could do was he could count down six decks. So in other words, you would turn over one card after another, six decks of cards stacked on top of each other, and you get to the last card, and he could tell you what it was. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. Which is phenomenal. But the phenomenal. tragedy of Stewie Unger was that he was a compulsive gambler, so he would then yeah. go bet sports, which right. he had no skill at. Right. That's so right. then he would bet sports, which he was terrible at and lose all of his money and he was a drug addict. That's right. He he made $30 million playing poker during his life and he died alone in a motel room. Right. He was a cocaine addict. He died with $800 in his pocket and that was all he had to his name at that point. God. But there's yeah. actually a scene in the book which is so striking where he's walks into a room and nobody will front him the money. That's right. He looks homeless. And he like yeah. goes away, goes on a run and comes back and wins. I mean, it's like, it's just so, I mean, anyone who has any interest in poker should, I've been interested in him for a long time. I used to live near the Lower East Side. And so yeah. when he was alive, I was interested in him. And anyone who's interested, there's also a movie about him, not a great movie, but if anyone who's interested in about him should read your book. And I'm going to put the link up on our Facebook because I think anyone, it's just really, really fascinating. And if you're interested in poker, it really kind of, really draws you in yeah yeah i think we should probably wrap this up yeah, but we yeah, could yeah. we could like keep you on. yeah you're like really one like one of those people where you're like the most interesting man in the world i really <laughs> i really i really think though laura why don't you place a fake bet to peter right now i want to hear the lingo you know what i mean i want to hear like, yeah i want to yeah i want to 20 20 percent spread on uh, you know my parents are going to be like yeah. Yeah, they're going to be kind of pissed when they Peter, three, <laughs> okay, three, Peter, three dimes, okay? On, no, that's, that's three, three dimes. <laughs> I was a lightweight better. I was. So, so first you would say, this is card player for Moondog. I want three dimes on the Giants minus seven. 
Okay. And that would be you're identifying who you are, who has your sheet, who is your agent. So your agent is Moondog. You're betting $3,000 on the Giants minus seven points. Wow. So you must be like the coolest dad at school. <laughs> you, I, used to, I used to pick up kids at that at Grace Church School, so I'm like definitely thinking you've got to be the coolest dad. It's, yeah, yeah. It, it's funny too. As a Harvard grad, I think we talked about this before. I thought I had an edgy job being a private investigator, and I tell you, you definitely beat me out. Big yeah, time. You, you guys yeah. have to be fun at the reunions when everyone else is like a banker and a lawyer. And no, I think we're just again. It's like jobs you don't tell your mom about. Exactly. <laughs> That's I think it's more, yeah, we need to have a book called "The Black Sheeps of Harvard." <laughs> That's that would be kind of a fun compilation. Yeah, Ivy League black sheeps. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been absolutely a blast. I think that our listeners really love these books.